Welcome back to Across the Pond. We're already on episode nine. Barry, how is it going today? It's going very well. The, th- the thunder and lightning is outside, but inside we're nice and warm and dry and ready to go. Oh, you're not alone there. It's also pouring down here in London. Let's get to our weekly podcast. So quite a busy week. We're obviously now in the f- sort of first full working week of the new year. Hopefully everyone is settling in well. Um, yeah, definitely quite a bit of an adjustment to the system. And uh, obviously if the festive period treated you well, I'm sure you'll be hitting the gym hard this first week. But uh, yeah, we've had a lot more serious things to chat about and we'll definitely get uh, right into it. Barry, though, uh, before we do, uh, was the festive break good to you? It was. It really was. I feel recharged and replenished and ready to tackle the year. It's always this weird limbo period of the first few days of January where everyone's still getting back from holiday and Joburg's starting to get a little bit more busier. But I think when the next week comes, in about Monday or so, things will get back on track fully. So looking forward to that. Yeah, Barry actually wasn't even sure if it was still okay to say Happy New Year. So it is kind of that period <laughs> in limbo. Um, but we'll certainly get into the swing of, uh, of how things go. So let's get to it. Uh, the week that was. The week that was. So the week that was, it was a pretty uh, busy one. And uh, yeah, some pretty historic things coming out of this last week. Uh, Let's get straight into the first one. The USA drone strike on Iran. Um, Obviously, you know, one of their sort of biggest generals has been assassinated. uh, The US taking full ownership for that. Um, And yeah, something we haven't seen in in some time, certainly on the scale. And it is, uh, yeah, basically quite a concerning one on a global scale. Uh, A lot of people saying it potentially could be uh, the cause of a World War Three. Barry, your thoughts? Yeah, that's exactly how I came across it. I, I woke up and went to Twitter and saw the trending hashtag. The number one trending hashtag was World War Three, and that's obviously never a good sign. And so we dug into it, and as you say, the Pentagon have come out and claimed... Um, credits, or I don't know if credit's the right word, or like they've authorized this this killing via drone of one of the top generals from Iran, General Soleimani. Um, and the statement from the Pentagon reads as follows. They said that General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. This strike was aimed at deterring future Iranian attack plans. So it definitely was a proactive strike, something that's done to try and avoid certain harms or potential harms down the line. Yeah. But in, in, in a very very, very tumultuous and kind of very difficult diplomatic situation for the U.S. to go and do this to Iran is a serious, serious statement. And a lot of people have raised a lot of concerns about what Iran's response could be, how they really feel about this, and the fact that they kind of authorized it outside of traditional war, outside of like actual conflict. Yeah was quite a serious statement. So the Iranian president actually uh, also made a statement, and he said the Soleimani's martyrdom will make Iran more decisive to resist America's expansionism and to defend our Islamic values. With no doubt, Iran and other freedom-seeking countries in the region will take his revenge. Now that is a terrifying statement to make, right? And this is this is the this is the kind of fight that the U.S. has been getting into in the, with the Middle East for the last twenty to thirty years, right? They are looking to fight Islamic fundamentalism and kind of the terrorist attacks they've seen into their own country, and in doing so, after on the backs of nine eleven, when Bush went into Iraq and started that first war. It's hard to argue whether actual progress has been made, right? So certain things have happened. They killed Osama bin Laden. They made some progress there from a U.S. perspective. But when it comes to the actual... The, the, the state of the region and the states of those kind of countries in the Middle East, things have got a lot worse in a lot of cases, right? And so... 
basically Obama at the end of his administration pulled out a lot of the troops out of Iraq and Trump has pulled out even more since he started in the administration. So it kind of felt like the US were finally going to let them do their thing and kind of pull out of the expansionary plans. Um, and then Trump goes and authorizes this drone strike. Um, and we don't know the context. There's a lot of speculation about why he did it and, and where it comes from. Um, this general was on the watch list for years now. So it's not a completely out of the blue. Like they have been watching this guy and trying to get him for a while. Um, but it really is a serious, serious statement to make, especially when a country like Iran is is a kind of country you will take revenge, right? We don't see the mediation. They don't want to go to mediation. They want to seek revenge. And and that revenge could be quite bloody and could be quite terrible for, for the, the free world and the Western world. I thought I'd also bring up a quote from the Iran's foreign minister, which is even more scary, um, a guy called Mohammad Javad Sarif. And on Twitter, he said that the U.S.'s act of international terrorism targeting and assassinating General Soleimani, the most effective force fighting Daesh or ISIS, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, etc., is extremely dangerous and a foolish escalation. The U.S. bears responsibility for all consequences of its rogue adventurism. Right. And so that kind of speaks to the fact that this thing isn't black and white. This isn't a Iran versus the US or an Islam versus the, the Western world at all. There's so much nuance and so much like difficult concepts and difficult factions within the Middle East itself that a statement like that kind of shows you that maybe maybe this is not as black and white as it first appears yeah. and what does this mean for the rest of the region when it comes to ISIS when it comes to Al-Qaeda and the rest of the terrorist groups surrounding Iran what does this mean when one of those big generals one of the big hobnobs at the top gets taken out like this with the drone um, and so it's it's honestly it's terrifying and, and no one knows what's going to happen there's been a lot of concerns in, in the press and the, obviously the media are running crazy with it um, it really is a dangerous dangerous situation to be in and uh, I don't quite know what to make of it, Chad. I was saying to you before we came online, I'm not sure how to speak about this with any real nuance or any real balance because this, there's so much propaganda out there about why this happened and what the implications could be. Um, and so it's really hard to know what this is going to say for the, the U.S. and the Middle East relations. Do you have any thoughts on this? Absolutely. So, I mean, as you say, it's quite a quite a complex one. And uh, something that, to be completely honest, I'm fully out of my depths on as well, just in terms of, of context of, of kind of, you know, the, the, the vast history that uh, that has accompanied this this whole um, relationship in the past. Um, but but certainly in terms of that propaganda, I think let's let's definitely unpack some of that. And uh, and let's look into some of these uh, messages that are being thrown about. Um, obviously, a lot of people kind of labeling them as threats um, on either side. Um, and so I think it's quite interesting to, to, to see what'll be what'll happen here so in terms of that revenge that you mentioned earlier um, basically Iran's already made a statement that they will be uh, essentially pulling out of the uh, nuclear deal uh, whereby they've uh, since 2015 been limiting the production of uh, uranium um, obviously that's uh, you know now quite a concern and and they are obviously uh, after pulling out of this, uh, now basically have uh, the means uh, to start constructing a, a sort of nuclear weapon, uh, if you'd like. From the other side, uh, from, from Trump's side, he certainly said that there's uh, 52 targets that are, are set up, kind of just ready to go, um, and that he is 
prepared pretty much to take disproportionate um, retaliation on uh, any action that they take, um, you know, on the back of this. Um, so very interesting uh, to, to look at both sides of the story here. Um, you know, just in terms of talking to your point of, of his reasonings, um, there's also been, you know, quite a few mixed messages there. So, uh, you know, somebody from uh, from the House itself, uh, who was actually basically heading up the impeachment um, sort of commission, um, has now come out and said that he has seen these uh, communications which were classified, uh, fully classified. That's also a point of contention. Um, and, you know, he he believes that there wasn't enough there to justify this uh, authorizing this attack um, in terms of, you know, the scale of the plans that they had been taking and also in terms of its imminence, um, which is also quite interesting uh, to look at. So yeah, just a lot of a lot of things uh, from, from all different perspectives. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of mixed messages here. Very interesting to uh, to you know, be thrown in the deep end here and uh, and all of us to, to kind of try and figure out where we stand on it. Definitely. I think one of the key points that you mentioned there was this change in trend, right? So in one of the quotes that I read, the, the term expansionism kind of stood out for me. Yeah. In the last, say, 50 to 60 years, America has kind of seen itself as the the police of the world, right? Or the moral defenders of the world. And they've gone out of their out of their way, out of their region to go and try and install democracies into places with authoritarian dictators or with Islamic fundamentalists or whatever the story is. And so America has kind of taken its they think its responsibility as as the world superpower to go and, and in, intervene in these places and try and make things better. And they've received a lot of criticism for that, and rightly so, because of the, the drama with the Vietnam War and then the Iraq War. And so Obama at the end of his administration starts to pull America out of those kind of plans. And Trump actually does more of that because he goes to a full US policy first kind of kind of world. And so you think America's turned around and going the opposite direction. And then they do something like this, yeah. which just goes against all the trends and all the plans. And I think that's why it was such a shock to everybody. I think if this had happened, say, um, two or three years into Barack Obama's administration, it would have made sense because you were in the in the midst of the 9-11 um, fallback. You're still trying to get America back on top. But now we, we're well past that point and things have stabilized is not the right word, but things have kind of relaxed a little bit and people are thinking more of America first, America first, America first, and then you do something like this. Yeah. So it really is a... A, a baffling move to make, um, and you you hope there are good reasons behind it. You hope that behind those classified doors, there's something that that justifies this. Um, but these kind of drone strikes, unfortunately, look like they're going to become the the talk of the town. And this is definitely not going to be the first one, right? So how Iran are going to react, how the rest of the region is going to react, and what this is going to do for the geopolitics on both sides is anyone's guess. I mean, in terms of your point there about uh, well. You know, just in terms of the the case that was made for authorizing this, as well as looking back on the Obama administration, um, a statement coming out from Trump basically saying that this should have been done a while back, um, which is which is interesting because it almost does indirectly discredit the case that's been made uh, for the imminence of these attacks now, where he's basically saying, well, you know, General uh, Soleimani has been, been doing things for some time, you know, uh, basically has, uh, he's, he's essentially listed all of those things and, and said that, you know, this has been coming for some time, which is quite interesting. That is interesting. And I think it's, it, it's kind of testament to the misunderstanding and 
us being able to un not understand what's going on behind the scenes, right? Because yeah. you can read whatever you want and you can see, th and Trump can say things and he can go and do the exact opposite behind the scenes. So yeah. actually, I don't think anyone is in a position to really make a real intelligent, educated answer or, or, or even a question on this, right? No sure. one knows what questions are the right ones to be asking and where they should be going. I think I think also what's interesting on, the, on this example is it just, just shows that war is turning from man-led to drone-led, right? We're seeing this where there was no US soldier who was ducking in and out of doors and jumping into buildings and any of that. It was a drone that was directed yep. towards one target to take out one target and did its job. And so I think it says a lot about the future of warfare and what the future of warfare could look like. If you don't have to sacrifice your humans, you can just sit in your situation room back in Washington, D.C. and authorize a strike thousands of kilometers away um, on a specific person in a specific building. Yeah. Um, and that brings to a lot of pros and cons when you look at the theory of war and how war could look in the future. And that's why this this murmuring of a World War Three is so terrifying because it's not going to be a world war like we know it, right? It's going to be a cyber war. It's going to be a drone war. It's going to be very very different kind of conflict if it gets to that kind of level. And I'm not saying I'm not saying it's going to. Yeah. But if it does, it's going to be something like unlike anything we've ever seen before. Well, this is this is the interesting thing. I mean, uh, like you said, we haven't seen sort of drone attacks on this kind of scale, and uh, and certainly this sort of um, accuracy, if you'd like. Obviously, uh, you know, as as you mentioned, the, the sort of cyber piece of it. There's obviously really solid uh, intelligence that basically um, you know made this uh, attack possible if you'd like um, and so in terms of you know data and uh, the speed at which data travels and all of those kinds of things like you said uh, the, if there was to be a war it would be drastically different now I think one of the things that could um, provoke it in that way um, certainly with this uh, this threat if you'd like of the 52 attack sites that have been lined up um, by the US um, is that some of these attack sites are actually cultural locations um, and uh, I believe this uh, this could potentially breach international law um, and obviously you know is is really being looked at as uh, as you know poking the bear if you'd like Definitely. And that's that's the underlying nastiness behind this whole conflict. Underneath all of this conflict is a fight about religion and it's a fight about Islam versus um, Christianity or, or Western ideals. Um, and, and that is a very, very complicated issue with a lot of different parts. Um, it's not something that I feel confident being able to speak on yeah. much. But like, but like you say, attacking those cultural points is a very clear indication of why this war was being waged and what matters to the people you're trying to harm or the enemies you're trying to to destroy, um, and that really says a lot about what a future world war could look like, right? It's not going to be a capitalism versus communism type war. It's going to be very, very different. And we've seen in the past that religious fundamentalism has led to a lot of very, very exaggerated emotional reactions from people because religion matters so much to us, Definitely. right? Your, your, your religion is such a part of your identity. It, it is, it's so dear and near to your heart and to what you, how you see the world. And so the moment someone's attacking your religious point of view or your religious buildings, your religious sites, it just r ramps up the levels completely. And so it's, it's dangerous and it's a bit concerning. Definitely. And I mean, just as we record this podcast, um, obviously on Monday night, um, yeah, basically just in uh, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, warned that the geopolitical tensions are at their highest level this century, um, which I definitely think is a concern. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll certainly be following it. And, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully this doesn't prompt something uh, that is concerning for everyone uh, 
around in the world. Um, moving on to our next topic. This is something that has been a developing story. Um, you know, fires in Australia. Um, so these started in September, um, but certainly in these last two weeks, it uh, definitely looks like these have escalated a bit. Uh, obviously, on the sort of southeast uh, coast of Australia, um, you know, I believe as today, as we speak tonight, uh, there's been some rain to basically help a bit on, on this. Um, but, you know, commentators are still basically saying that, uh, you know, just given the, the sort of dry levels and uh, and the heat, of course, uh, in Australia, the latter part of this week, uh, it, it, there's still very serious risk to be involved yeah definitely I think it's I think it's a it's a terrifying story to watch and having read some of the media and seen some of the pictures and the videos it really is it's devastating over there um, but like I was chatting to a friend of mine this has been going on for a long time like you said September was when a lot of these fires started and Australian firefighters and civilians have been fighting these fires for months now yeah. but only in the last couple of weeks has international media actually started to make it a story and kind of got on board and all of a sudden all of this international aid has gone to Australia in its time of need um, and so this is not a overnight thing, right? This is a, a, a month-long pro month process. And uh, it's indicative of the kind of climate change we're seeing across the world, and especially in places like Australia. These fires, for those who don't know, these fires kind of happen on a regular basis, right? They have fires every single year. But the extent of these 2019-2020 fires are staggering. And they, they blow through every record ever, ever, ever made. And so I'll give you some of the stats here, Chad. So far, about... 6.3 million hectares of land have been destroyed, that's right? It. So that's about two or three times the amount of rainforest that was destroyed by the Amazon rainforest fires a few months ago. So a huge amount of land has been destroyed. 24 people have died and thousands of homes have been destroyed. But probably the most heartbreaking thing to, for me to see is the amount of animals who've been either displaced or died because that's the it. ecosystem has been completely demolished, right? These fires have completely taken over. And a lot of these species, some of them might may become extinct because they're under so much stress, right? Yep. There's serious, serious issues with this. Um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a dire situation for Australia. Um, I, I think, Chad, you were, you were looking at some, some images from, from NASA that they were showing you some of the fires. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some Im images being released. And yeah, from, from space, uh, I mean, you can quite clearly see the extent of the fires in Australia, which is quite, a, quite an insane thought. Um, you know, when you actually, obviously, you, you, you see the 6.3 million hectares. Um, but you know, when you look on that satellite imagery and uh, and actually see them for yourselves, um, it, it's it's pretty crazy stuff. I mean, we've also seen, obviously, um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned the wildlife. We've seen some really traumatic images online um, of of you know wildlife that that has just been burnt alive. And um, I, I think I think these kinds of messages are, are potentially the reason why uh, mainstream media and you know loads of celebs and, and and that kind of stuff have really just rallied behind this cause and and donated quite a bit of money. Um, you know, even even the government basically uh, coming up with a plan. Um, as far as I know, it was kind of one billion dollars uh, to to really just uh, help everyone kind of after these fires uh, settle, which is getting ahead of ourselves. Um, you know, kind of just help everyone kind of get back, get their lives back together, um, and and certainly some some sizable donations from from others too, which which is obviously great. But you know, there is certainly limited resources that size. And uh, before you know, we we've, we've got monetary value resources obviously key as well to, to get these fires put down definitely i was reading about the fact that they had recently called the army in to come and help and every civilian who is capable is, is volunteering as a firefighter and some of these firefighters are working 16 to 18 hours a day just trying to keep things at bay Right, so not making any progress, not putting out any fires, but just trying to save houses, save people, and save animals. Yeah. Um, and so this kind of, like, as you say, 
all the money in the world's amazing, but if you don't have the hands, if you don't have the actual people there to do it and the equipment and the kind of whatever resources are needed to put out the scale of fires, it doesn't really help. The money doesn't go that far. Yep. Um, and so I think that it's it's a call for 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 serious thinking about what why these happened and, and how can we avoid these happening in the future. Um, as far as I understand, there was a little bit of rain in the last two days, which has helped a little bit, but the, the fires are still going and we still need a lot, a lot of help there. Um, and so it's a really devastating situation. And it's one of those things where, like, Chad, I think you're the same as me. Like, we kind of read about this online. We're not quite sure what to make of it, Definitely. right? We kind of read, we see these, these photos, but we know these photos are always sensationalized. Yep. They're always filtered. You're always not sure what's happening on the ground. So what I did was I actually reached out to a friend of mine who lives in Sydney to ask her about some of her experiences to get some insights as to what it's like on the ground. And so I thought what we'd do, Chad, is pull the what's on your mind segment up to now and we ask my friend what's on her mind in Australia about the fires. Absolutely. I think that that would definitely be insightful for any of our listeners. So let's do that. What's on your mind? So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think quite quite fascinating that you've got someone on the ground who's actually uh, able to give us a bit of a perspective. Um, you know, certainly you've, you've kind of uh, spent a bit of time uh, probing her on it. Um, you know, we've, we've had a few cases of fires in, in South Africa, uh, you know, the, the sort of Neisner fires in the past. And like you say, just in terms of getting that real idea, it's really hard uh, when you've got, uh, you know, one or two pictures to base that off of. So please do just uh, let us know what she had to say. Sure. So let me work through some of her points and give you a sense of what it looks like on the ground. So first, the first point she made was that the devastation is not exaggerated, right? So the things you're seeing online, the kind of numbers that you're seeing are not exaggerated. Like the devastation is real and it's very, very serious and people are taking it very, very seriously. So I think it's, I think it's fair to say this is a real, real issue we should care a lot about. The second point she made was that there have been days in Sydney where the air quality has been up to 23 times the hazardous level. Right, so there's been days where the air pollution in Sydney has been so bad that it's been really damaging people's health in a city. So just to give you some context, Sydney is probably the least affected out of, out of the whole of Australia because it's like this major urban area on the side of Australia, right? In the outback and out in the rural areas of Australia, that's where even more of the damage is happening. So in Sydney, if the air quality is 23 times the hazardous like, rate, imagine what it's like in those, in those rural yeah. areas or in the smaller towns around. I mean, I read a story about a, one small town about three hours north of Sydney that was destroyed completely. The whole town is gone. Which is, which is terrifying. Insane. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of, uh, you know, how that sort of smoke got there, I, there's been gust winds of, I believe, up to 90 kilometers an hour uh, in an easterly direction, um, obviously bringing that smoke from the sort of Midlands um, right into, right into the, the capital. And also to give you a sense of how dense that smoke is, that smoke has its own weather. Right, so independence of the weather happening above the smoke, which is crazy to me to, wow. to think about the fact that the smoke is so dense that it brings its own rain, its own thunderstorms, its own weather, wow. independent of what's happening on the sky just a few like 100 meters above. Wow. Um, and so that is a serious, serious concern for the people of Sydney and for people a lot of this, wherever the major populated areas are in Australia. And it kind of shows you how, how bad this has been and how long these fires have been burning for. She said to me that there have been days where Sydney has been orange, has been fully orange, which is crazy to think about. When you put that there, I actually thought that was to do with a scale on a map type of thing. Um, but you're saying oh. you're saying the actual coloration of the of the sky type of thing has come across as the orange. actual actual color of the sky and the actual like the, the the hue around Sydney, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. 
I also a little bit about what is the mood on the ground. So what are people talking about? Like what? How do the Australians feel? And she says there's a lot of concern about is this a new reality, right? So we chatted a bit earlier about the fact these fires happen every single year. So it's something Australia has had to deal with for a long period of time. But the question is, is this the new reality? Is this the new benchmark and it's going to get worse from here? Or is there a route or a map or a path to try and improve from the situation, right? If you think about if climate change keeps getting worse and worse, do these fires keep getting worse and worse? And so that's the real worry about the, worry about this. Even if you spend the next month and you put out all the fires and you get things back to relative stability, yeah. what happens in the following summer in 2020, 2021, then what happens, right? And so is this a new reality? And that's a scary, scary place to be, I think, for a lot of Australians. She also mentioned the fact that, well, like, like we said, international media has only picked it up in the last few weeks, but they've been dealing with it for months now. Yeah. And uh, she thinks it's interesting to see a bigger conversation. They definitely needed the help. So Australia desperately needed the help and the resources. So it's a little bit of a check mark for the world that we at least can step together and kind of help when needed. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a direct link with climate change. And so a lot of the, a lot of the, the scrutiny goes to the people in power. And the, the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is under severe criticism at the moment. Uh, she was telling me that when he goes out to some of the, the places where the fires are and tries to meet with civilians and tries to show his face in these areas, he gets a very poor reception, right, which is not, not good in, in a face of crisis. You want your leader to like, be a beacon of hope and to someone who's going like, to push morale forward and kind of help people believe and kind of get things going. And in, instead, he's getting very poor receptions because he's, he's known to be very connected to the coal industry. Okay. Now, what I didn't realize before this, before before looking into this, was that Australia has humongous coal like reserves and mines. Of all the global coal, Australia um, produces and exports thirty two percent of it. Wow. Right. So they they are arguably the biggest coal producer in the world, and so obviously this is a serious bugbear for them. And obviously, as a prime minister, like if that's your biggest industry and you're trying to keep industry happy, like he's obviously going to be connected to the coal industry if it's that important to their economy and to their GDP. Yeah. But this is a direct contrast now to the fires that are burning in your cities. And so it's a huge, huge dichotomy between an, a coal country. Uh, Australia is a coal country. And then you look at the climate change um, kind of effects and what these fires are doing. And you have to think that drastic change is needed. Yep. So something has to happen, right? They have to think about like, what can we do to improve the situation? What can we do to kind of reverse some of these effects or at least stabilize some of these effects? So that things don't get worse year after year after year, right? There's a serious concern that 2021, 2022, 2023, we see worse and worse and worse and worse. So all in all, it's really, really dire straits. Um, we, we send our thoughts and prayers to everyone in Australia. Um, I think it's a terrible time at the moment. Um, and hopefully, like, for me, I'm trying. I always try to look for the bright side, and what I'm hoping from this is that it kind of brings more serious awareness to the issue of climate change, and kind of can kick a butt under some of the politicians around the world to change the way we think about energy and the way we think about how we deal with our atmosphere. Places like China and the U.S., who are still the major CO2 em emitters, they need to change their policies and they need to make changes because, on a global level, these are just this is the tip of the iceberg of the things that could happen if climate change continues unabated. 
Absolutely fascinating and, yeah, completely devastating for, for anyone there in Australia. Um, I did also come across these uh, Prime Minister, um, you know, sort of accusations and those kinds of things. Um, and obviously, when a crisis like this hits, uh, we kind of, you know, sort of retreat back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, where obviously the fires is sort of primary of primary importance. But I think it is also important to look at uh, leadership and, and look at certain things that could have prevented this. And, uh, and certainly Australia not doing their part on a you know, on a CO2 emissions uh, scale. And uh, also, he's being criticized quite heavily for taking a vacation to Hawaii while this crisis is happening in his home. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's one of those things where it's just it's terrible PR, right? It's terrible PR. It's like you, 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 you could argue that he's been dealing with these for months now and he's probably been working crazy hours and he maybe needs a break to be able to think clearly and think more strategically. Um, and that's like the most generous um, thought you could make about it. Uh, but from a PR perspective, you need to be with your people on the ground during times like this. Um, so a bit, a bit silly to be caught doing that during this kind of, this kind of time. Absolutely. I mean, those are obviously the, the two big stories from this week. Um, one that I thought just worth quickly mentioning, um, because it does touch both sides of our pond uh, that we cover in this uh, podcast, is, um, yeah, Just Eat. So uh, we spoke about Deliveroo a couple of weeks back um, being essentially just a delivery uh, company, Just Eat being one of their uh, biggest competitors. Um, and, uh, yeah, essentially, uh, JSE, Johannesburg-listed uh, entity, Nasbers, um, and one of their subsidiaries, uh, Process has been uh, bidding for this entity in uh, the UK and uh, it looks like today um, there was a, a competing bid uh, from a company called takeaway.com and it looks like that bid is uh, going to be the winning one uh, on this front but yeah I mean really just interesting how these sort of digital businesses I mean really just uh, an app that essentially facilitates customers to suppliers um, is able to get competing bids from opposite ends of the globe yeah, I think it just shows that the value of these marketplaces are just so immense, right? With limited technology, limited people on the project, if you can create a marketplace which has supply and demand over something that's of value, I mean, you can you can sell the company for for millions and millions of dollars. So it's it's interesting to see. I think that. All of the major companies in the last kind of five or six years have been marketplaces of some sort. Yeah. It's certainly been the trend of the day. Um, and I think every single entrepreneur who's sitting at home thinking of ideas is trying to think about what is the next marketplace that I can build yeah. uh, with minimal efforts and minimal work to sell it at a huge multiple. So it certainly is the it's the the virtualization or the digitization of previously manual things um, and that trend we're going to see for a long time. Completely agree. And uh, when that trend continues, obviously our lives just get easier with every single iteration. Uh, so we'll certainly follow that deal and uh, just make sure that one goes through. Um, but yeah, let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. So uh, Barry's been uh, pretty busy this week. He's come across a few things. Barry, take it away. Yeah, so I think we started on quite a somber note with those two news stories. So I think it's it's time to bring some hope and some some cheer into into the world. And uh, I found this amazing. I'm gonna call her a poet, but she's actually a spoken word artist, right? And her name is Sarah K. So K A Y is her surname. And I kind of came across her. She did a TED talk on the TED stage. I think it was about four or five years ago. Okay. And her TED talk was basically two poems, one at the beginning and one at the end, and then a little bit of her story in between and talking a little bit about what spoken word is. And she was the very, I think she was the first and only person ever to get two standing ovations during wow. a TED talk. <laughs> so she got a standing ovation after the first poem 
and then right at the end of a talk after the second poem. Wow. So that's all the social proof you need. Go and w- watch the TED Talk. It really is amazing. Um, and the two poems are absolutely incredible. And why I thought it was interesting was because I've seen a bit of a resurgence when it comes to spoken word and poetry in the last kind of couple of years. And that's because of things like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and these places where people can finally share their stuff and get it seen by more people. I think for a long time, poets kind of were very, very... I don't want to say stigmatized or they were very recluse. They kind of would write their poetry and only the very best would have anthologies published and not many people would read it. Like poetry is not a huge thing. But when you think about like song lyrics are poetry and prose in literature is poetry. And so poetry kind of infects a lot of our life and infects a lot of our media. But the actual form itself was really struggling. And I'm seeing a resurgence in that. I'm seeing places like YouTube and, 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 and these kind of online digital platforms which allow people to share their poems in verbal formats and in video formats is really changing the game when, it, when you come to poetry. And that's why poetry has become sp- known as spoken word. So in this TED Talk, she kind of talks about the fact that spoken word is different to poetry because you're actually performing it. It's not just the words on a page, which I can read with any interpretation that I want. When someone is performing their words on stage, all of a sudden there's so much more character, there's so much more oomph and heart in that poem, especially because that person wrote it, right? So it obviously means something to them. And so it's brought this whole new world into poetry that I don't think existed beforehand. And I've seen there's been tons of spoken word artists on YouTube, for example, who now have millions of followers and are making a living doing this. And Sarah Kay is probably one of the one of the biggest ones in that. She's got wow. millions and millions of followers online and is making good money from her spoken word. Um, and so I thought it was interesting to talk about how this medium change has all of a sudden like almost rehabilitated an old art form that wasn't really enjoyed by a lot of people and made it accessible to someone who never would have thought of poetry beforehand. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I think as as a society, I think we're certainly moving towards uh, more meaningful things. We're kind of trying to really strip out, um, you know, that which is kind of on the surface. Um, and uh, and I think I think you're completely right. I think to have that open platform where people can, uh, you know, open up a YouTube channel and, and get lost in somebody else's perspective of the world is is a is a great thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really just interesting. I mean, just in terms of uh, you know poetry being seen as an art which you know kind of contends with the rest of them um you know music like you said is a form of poetry and musicians or, or certainly writers of uh, or composers of songs have for a long time been remunerated for that uh, you know com- those compositions um whereas you know poetry has as you said just kind of faded out into the into the distance so i certainly will be watching uh, that ted talk um i mean let's let's talk about ted talks as well because we kind of haven't really spoken about that before on the on the platform and this i think kind of uh, you know dovetails with with what i said in the beginning as well that you know as society we kind of want to to uh, learn from others we want to kind of uh, pick out what people have learned over the course of their lives um and and really just get exposure to to things that are new Exactly, and, and that's and those kind of run in parallel, right? So, so TED Talks have also kind of brought a new reverence to the art of public speaking and the art of being able to articulate yourself in a short period of time. Um, and it's really changed how people think about packaging ideas and then serving it to a mass audience. So what I love about TED Talks is that you'll have someone who goes on a career for 30 years, like does incredible things, right? And then they get told they've got 20 minutes to condense and be as concise as possible with their greatest wisdom or their greatest ideas to share with the world. And I can then go and sit and invest 20 minutes of my time and gain 30 years of insights from that person. 
And that kind of power, that scale and leverage is unheard of, right? You can go and watch a TED Talk every single day, and after 100 days, you'll be a much better person and much Definitely. wiser and will have learned from so many incredible people. Um, and that possibility and that opportunity wasn't there for us beforehand. So like you say, it's an example of this democratization of ideas, this kind of leveraging of the streaming media and the, the ability to stream things to my phone, on my couch, in my home, even if the TED conference was in California or in New York, a thousand miles away. So that's super cool. Absolutely. I mean, I can't wait to watch your TED talk one day, Barry. <laughs> So moving on to the next one, uh, this one is quite interesting. I actually, uh, we, we were in Amsterdam uh, earlier last year now, uh, still need to get used to saying that, um, and basically came across <laughs> an experience um, where, yeah, essentially um, there are emulated environments um, for basically reenacting what it would be like to be blind. So sort of a supermarket, you know, a, a dining experience, uh, your kind of... Uh, walking on the street all of those sorts of environments have been recreated in a let's say warehouse type of situation and for me yeah really interesting to uh, get an get an understanding about what it's like to be disabled so please tell me about something else you've discovered yeah sure so i'm not sure quite sure how i came across this it kind of came across my path in some way there's this guy in i don't even know which i think it's in the uk who um kitted out a hotel room and did his best to make it as inconvenient as possible, right? So he did everything he could in that hotel room to infuriate anyone who was <laughs> staying there. Right. So things like there's this giant lip around the bed that you have to climb out of if you want to get out of the bed. And for example, the bathroom door doesn't close the whole way and the lock is broken and the shower gel is the wrong way and the toilet paper is like bolted the wrong way. And every single thing in this, in this little hotel room has been um, designed to be as difficult and as unuser friendly as possible. And this is what what the reason is and this has kind of become like a tourist attraction. People go there to try and see what craziness they can they can kind of what, what craziness can unfold. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the play that goes wrong, which is a, a play a, a theater show that basically is exactly the same premise where everything goes wrong. And kind of the reason that he made this hotel room and the reason it got so popular was because he was trying to make a statement about what you were saying just earlier, saying that this is what it's like to live in a world as a disabled person. So they were trying to sh just give the contrast to show as an able-bodied person, we take a lot for granted because the world is, is kind of designed and terraformed for our purposes and our interests, yeah. right? So it's perfect for us. The doors are the right height and everything works and the stairs are right and everything's been thought about from an able-bodied perspective. And so what happens when we go into one of these environments which has been designed for completely different kind of set of people or completely different perspective on life, we get infuriated. We get frustrated. Like, we don't want to be there. It annoys us, right? I mean, all of us have been in that position where something doesn't work in a hotel room or in an Airbnb or something, and we get really furious about it. Yeah. Um, because we expect everything to be perfect. We expect everything to work as we want it to work. And so he's kind of making an interesting social commentary on the fact that we need to think about other people. We need to think about especially the, dis the disabled community and make sure our spaces and our, our homes and our buildings are designed in a way that also caters to them, right? And it's not kind of discriminatory and not is... And we actually think about people other than ourselves. Yep. And so I think it's a beautiful kind of statement and a beautiful almost art experiment, it's kind of living art experiment, this very, very inconvenient hotel room. 
I must completely agree. I think it's great that people do these types of things. And, uh, you know, certainly on the Amsterdam one, I didn't get time to go and see it, but it's on my list. Uh, next time I'm there, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely there. So, you know, this is also completely similar. So um, as, I, as I explained, uh, just basically dark spaces, um, completely sort of pitch, pitch black rooms. Um, and you, you know, you kind of have to actually experience what it's like. Um, and, you know, in those moments in life where we get into a little tizz about something so, uh, you know, so in, insignificant, it really does just put into perspective what others are dealing with. And, and like you say, we, we really just need to start thinking a bit more about others, um, which is great to see that uh, we are now doing. Um, should we move on to our next one? Let's do it. Looking ahead. I am really, really upset to see this one on the list, um, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, this coming from a, a background of uh, being really always very interested in film, um, you know, kind of always having had a, a camera strapped to my hand from pretty much uh, high school. Um, and, you know, rule 101 of, uh, of making a film is aspect <laughs> ratio 16 to 9. Barry's now saying we're thinking it must be 9 to 16. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not saying that. Sam, Samsung is saying that. Um, yeah, l- like you say, a very a very controversial product debut from Samsung. And basically, Chad's alluding to it. But Samsung have come out with this TV called the Cero TV. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Cero or Cero, one of those. And basically, when you push a button on the TV, the TV rotates from its usual horizontal position into a vertical position. Right? So basically... If you imagine your cell phone when you're looking at Instagram on your phone, then imagine it on a big screen on your wall. That's basically the idea. And and this, this is obviously kind of a nod to the, the millennial generation who are viewing all of their media and a lot of their media on these social networking platforms, which are all using vertical um, aspect ratios and kind of using vertical video, especially on Instagram, to kind of storytell. And that's how that the app is kind of designed. Um, and they're obviously trying to create a TV experience for that kind of user. Like you say, it's very controversial <laughs> because um, a lot of the a lot of the traditional film makers and whatnot aren't even going to look at this, right? I, I kind of see this use case as used for YouTubing or surfing the web or doing whatever you're going to do on your phone but on a bigger screen. I can't see a world where filmmakers are going to create films for vertical aspect ratios. <laughs> but that being said, I've seen a number of people on Instagram specifically understand that this form factor has changed and seen some interesting innovation in how to film for vertical video. So it's interesting to me. I, I'm not sure if it's going to work. I'm not sure how much demand they're going to have for this TV. But it kind of shows how the millennials are starting to come into the workforce and starting to have that buying power to try to push these big manufacturers to make these seemingly crazy decisions about a form factor like this. I mean, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I mean, if we rewind a few years back, uh, where Instagram was just a platform that you could scroll through posts, um, we then saw a bit of a kind of copying type of move from from Snapchat um, (laughs) with, you know, Instagram stories. And for the first bit, it was kind of like, uh, you know, there is an app for that. We, we're we're going to stick to you know Snapchat, and and suddenly, um, just out of convenience, I think, um, obviously Snapchat's filters and those kinds of things always always having been superior in the past. Um, people really just started the shift to Instagram and Instagram Stories, and for me, fascinating how um, that pattern of consumption 
is now affecting uh, product releases and and product design, um, which I find is is really interesting. But I mean, if you if you just uh, have a have a little walk around on the street, uh, if you're sort of touristing around everywhere in the world, um, and and you look at the orientation that the majority of people are placing their phones in, um, it is vertical, um, which is very interesting because a lot you know f- traditionally we've consumed um, our media in a horizontal. Um, fashion and uh, certainly if you if you start to think about um, where we're going to be viewing this media in years gone by because obviously Instagram is one of those use cases okay I'll take a, a picture of, of something or take a video of something and upload it now straight away but that file is going to live on my computer for years to come um, and you know 20 years later how am I going to want to consume it and so for me I find it really interesting when uh, when people's um, capturing um, you know, philosophies have changed to vertical, especially if you think of the, the long-term consequences. For, for me, it kind of feels like lazy, human laziness has kind of <laughs> made this form change, right? Because it's so much easier to hold your phone in one hand. <laughs> it's kind of connected and my thumb just does its thing rather than sitting with two hands on the tube watching watching a video. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's that kind of, that the trends we're seeing in the consumer landscape then feed the media and the kind of devices and equipment that we get. So we get the devices that we deserve at yep. the end of the day, right? So as consumers, if we're going to consume video in a vertical fashion, then Samsung are going to have to come out with these kind of devices and equipment to try and get us to buy them. Yep. Um, and so it's it's interesting. I think that vertical video is, is, is very controversial. I, I, I haven't seen many really good interpretations or really good like executions on it just yet um as you say instagram stories for me it's it's not really cinematic it's kind of just to share your day and there are some influencers who've gone really like like really really hard to try and make it as cinematic as possible yeah but there's nothing quite like sitting down to that flat screen that wide angle and watching a really really good piece of film that's being made um, and so whether people are going to watch Instagram stories on a TV, I have no idea, <laughs> but it's an interesting development nonetheless. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. Now, um, I got a little nugget of a hint um, this last week that I'm up for a treat. Um, Barry asked if I'd heard of a particular person, and I hadn't. Uh, so, yeah, I've been, I've been kept in suspense for some time. Barry, <laughs> save me out of my misery. Oh, Chad, I'm about to change your life <laughs> and all of the lives of the listeners. So, so buckle down, get ready. His name is David Goggins. So his surname is G-O-G-G-I-N-S. Okay. His name is David Goggins, right? All you have to do is go and listen to everything this man has ever said and re- read everything this man has ever written. Um, and the reason is that he is he is a self a self development voice that is not preachy, that is not um, like just five habits to make your day better. Okay. It's not like the 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 cheat code or the kind of the shortcut to success. This guy is the most authentic voice I've heard in the self-development movements in the last couple of years. And I've been absolutely enamored by him. And I, I really, really respect him. And I really appreciate the fact that, that he's doing what he's doing. Basically, he is a Navy SEAL. So he was a Navy SEAL for like 12 or 14 years. And that's kind of how he made his, his way in the U.S., but before that, he lived this crazy life where he had a terrible childhood background. He had parents who were alcoholics and abusive. He went through serious like struggles as a child. He um, wasn't a home, was didn't have a home for a while. Went through the phase where he got enormously fat um, and was very unhealthy on on the brink of like almost 
death in, in a way, and went through these terrible life tribulations and got to a point where he decided that enough was enough. And if you read his book or you listen to some of his interviews, he then kind of turned his life around. And the way he describes it is by saying that he created another alter ego. He created a person who he called okay. just Goggins, right? So he created okay. Goggins. And he decided that I don't have the confidence, I don't have the fitness, I don't have the, the smarts, but this man I've just created, Goggins, he can be confident and he can wow. work hard and he can do these things. Yeah. And so all he, all he decided to do was when he wanted to achieve something, so for example, losing the weight, he decided, cool, I'm not going to lose the weight. Goggins is going to lose the weight because he can do it. And by separating this person in his mind, what he was able to do was simply remarkable. And he turned his entire life around. He lost all of that weight. He became an absolute badass, went into the Navy SEALs, and became wow. known as one of the toughest humans on the planet. And when you listen to him talk, you'll get that sense straight away. It's, it's, no, it's, no, it's not hidden at all. Um, he is one of the toughest guys in the, on the planet. And basically the reason I wanted to bring him up was because he argues and fights against interviewers who try and ask him for secrets, right? Everyone asks, okay, so how did you do it? Like, what were the five <laughs> steps, right? What were the things? What was the app you used for your fitness? Yeah. What was the this yeah. and the that? And he gets really, like, indignant with them. And he says, no, like, nothing. There is no secret. It takes suffering. It takes, you have yeah. to suffer for something that you want. He says, if there's a goal in the future, it's not about finding the best goal tracking app and then setting out and writing in your journal 10 times a day and then meditating for an hour and yada, 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 yada. It's about sitting down and suffering on that thing. So if you want to run a marathon, the only way you learn or the only way you get there is by running. You don't get there by reading books about running or reading blogs about running or listening to podcasts about running. And that hit me really personally because I do that a lot, right? I, I yeah. like to think my way through things instead of actually acting them out. So there's a big wake-up call for me. A lot of my goals that I've set for myself, I'm very good at planning and writing amazing plans and visualizations and all of that stuff. <laughs> and he basically says that that is all BS and you should suffer and work as hard as you can for what you want. So it's kind of a, a refreshing breath of, 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 of air um, and definitely a different kind of perspective to a lot of the self-help or self-development speakers you see in the world. Um, and so yeah, I thought I'd bring it to your attention. I think it's amazing. I think everyone should go and listen to him. He's really, really great. Incredible. Uh, definitely need to go and check out his stuff. Um, it was worth it. It was worth the uh, the wait and anticipation. Um, I mean, yeah, certainly when it comes to this kind of mass scale weight loss, um, you know, for me, um, as a sort of in shape guy, I think it's I think it's really hard for, well, for you know for for you and I to kind of sympathize with uh, with what these types of people have to go through. And I think it's a massive, massive mental game, um, you know, more than anything else. Um, so this idea of creating an alter ego um, is 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 actually really, really powerful. Um, you know, kind of think of think of this person uh, who's actually going to enact this change as somebody else. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really great idea, and uh, hopefully brings inspiration to a lot of people. Definitely. And another reason that's powerful is because he mentioned the fact that no one is there cheering you on, right? So yeah. when you start a new habit, everyone's super excited for you. So Chad, when I heard your goals 2020, <laughs> I'm super excited for you, right? <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to get to March or April. I would have forgotten completely. Yeah. Like there's no one cheering you on and there's no medal that you win, right? So it's very easy when there's something you're working towards. There's some sort of medal, some sort of achievement, some sort of kind of satisfaction you're going to get from some external motivation. Yeah. 
he kind of pushes back and says, listen, the reason you create that alter ego is because you only have internal motivation. That is all that matters. You can read every book, every book in the library. You can listen to every Tony Robbins speech in the world. You can listen to Oprah. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. If the motivation is not coming from inside of you and you're relying on inspiration from the world, you're not going to do it because there's going to be days and weeks and months when that inspiration is not going to be there. And the professionals, the really effective people, are able to perform in those environments because it comes from inside. And so by creating this external alter ego, you're saying to yourself, I am creating this. The motivation is coming from me. And that person that I'm creating, that ideal who I want to be, that person that I want to be, eventually I'm going to merge with that person once I've achieved my goals, right? But by separating them out, I know that the motivation for that person is coming from Barry. Yeah, and that's and that's really cool. I mean, as as amazing as this sounds, and and I'm sure it is, I will definitely check it out. I have to play devil's advocate just a little bit, um, because he is now effectively Tony Robbins. Um, and so, do you get the feeling that um, you know it is fully authentic that he's there for the complete right reasons, um, or you know, is he um, you know able to, um, to to basically get us to think about motivational speakers a little bit differently where you know he is for all intents and purposes one as well i'm so glad you brought that up because that's exactly my expectation when i first heard about him and, and read a few things about him right um, and to be honest he is the, the reason i'm so excited about him is i think he is the first person that has passed my bs radar <laughs> in this world of personal development right. and and motivational speaking right so like you say there's a lot of there's a lot of nonsense behind the scenes and, and the self-help movement has got a lot of baggage because a lot of people have tried to make money of these kinds of stories but for some reason i can't explain why maybe i'm just taking by his charisma yeah. but the way that he speaks and the story that he tells is something that really really spoke to me and really really kind of bred authenticity and I don't get the sense that he's trying to do this to make a quick buck I really don't I get the sense that he's trying to do this to push back against a lot of people who are selling books and selling like cheat sheets yeah. and shortcuts and habits to get to where you need to be he he's one of the only people I've heard about who speaks about suffering in the way that he does and he speaks about the fact that if you're going to change your life you have to change the habit the things you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis and that is going to hurt yeah. it's going to suck you're going to go through periods where you're like why am i doing this because yeah. you are going against the grain you're going against your your well-worn easy pathways and you're choosing a different path and he speaks about that suffering as a point of pride and a point of that is when you know you're on the right path right it shouldn't be easy if it's easy you're not doing the right thing um and so that's that's for me why i i think it's authentic i'd be interesting to hear chad what your thoughts once you've like heard him a little bit yeah. and maybe i'm off the off the mark here but for me he's the first person that i've ever heard that passes my bs radar well that's amazing i think we need more sort of authentic voices like that now barry um we're also this week thinking bigger take me through it yeah, so this one is, is a short one. Um, basically, I, I'm a firm believer in that the questions that you ask in life are very important and they kind of dictate how you think and the actions you're going to make in the world. Yeah. And so I came across this amazing question from a guy called Peter Thiel, who was the first outside investor in Facebook, and he now owns a company called Palantir, which is doing a huge data science work, for a lot of the work for the, the US government. So a very, very powerful person in Silicon Valley. And his, this question I thought was interesting to bring up. Here's the question. If you have a 10-year plan of how to get somewhere, you should ask yourself, why can't you do this in six months? 
Right. So yeah. the idea is we, we all have these ideas. Like I'm sure some people have sat down at, the, at 2020 and said, cool, what do I want to have accomplished by 2030? And what this question is designed to do is just to try and change your mindset and ask you to think 10x bigger. So not 10% bigger, but 10x bigger. If you wanted to achieve that 10-year plan in the next six months, what would change in your life? What kind of things would you do? What resources would you need, et cetera, et cetera? Now, the idea of the question is not to then achieve it in six months, yeah. right? That's, yeah. not, that's not the point. The point is just to kind of break some of the patterns in our minds and force us to th imagine a little bit and think a bit differently about how we tackle a problem. A lot of times, the way we think about a goal, we think about what we're trying to accomplish, we have this status quo in our mind. We have this path in our mind that we think is the only way to go. And questions like this try to bump you off that path a little bit and give you a sense of, if I was trying to compress this into a much shorter period of time, what would I do differently? And this sometimes unlocks insights and unlocks different points of view that you might not have thought about if you were just giving yourself 10 years to get there. So I thought it was a very cool question, something to think about as you go into 2020. How do you take those 10-year goals, and if you had to do them in six months, what would you change? Very interesting. I mean, we've certainly heard about the your thoughts affect your life. I mean, if you think of kind of the secret, um, you know, and that how that kind of uh, affected the way people edit their thoughts, um, you know, that's really interesting. But we've definitely not seen something so uh, practical and so uh, easy to apply, easy to visualize. Um, so I think that's that's quite an interesting way of looking at it. And I think you're right. I think we a lot of the time um, are our own ceilings in our minds. Um, I think a lot of the time we are capable of doing a lot more um but for you know various excuses that we uh, put about um you know just kind of don't see ourselves getting there so uh yeah very interesting um and uh, yeah we definitely need to do some thinking on that now just another short one um we kind of uh, got another couple of little short ones um i actually went into a I mean, we kind of spoke about health and wellness and and that kind of thing uh in in the past few weeks um there is basically a health and wellness month at the company i'm working at and so kind of at lunch times they're having these lunch and learn type sessions and today's one was uh, just about nutrition now what better way to start your new year and new year goals um, with a bit of a crash course into diet and nutrition and, and that type of thing and uh, I mean yeah basically uh, let's let's kind of just strip a couple of these things out so if we if we look at the fads and the diets like you mentioned kind of like with the self-improvement uh, you know fads and, and, and tips and tricks and those kinds of things um, a lot of people uh, yeah basically coming back to to the basics and 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 saying you know there, there is no particular trick but there is science and, uh, you know, there are a couple of equations uh, that if you, um, you know, apply for your life um, will we'll kind of make, make that difference. So, um, yeah, basically just introduced me to a, an equation uh, where you essentially calculate the number of calories uh, that you as an individual, as you, um, need to uh, consume a day to either maintain, lose or, or gain weight. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically the... Uh, the premise of these calculations is your your basal metabolic rate times your physical activity levels. Now, obviously, uh, certain specific multiples have been given, and if you're listening on YouTube, I'll I'll pop them up on the screen. Um, I'm sure you could you know Google this uh, this equation otherwise. Um, but yeah, just an interesting one of uh, obviously counting calories has had some some bad rap in in the past. Um, but you know, a lot of commentators saying that uh, the only sort of sustainable way to lose weight is to put in a sort of calorie deficit of uh, 500 calories a day. Um, and if you're looking to gain weight, um, a, a surplus of about 
300 calories a day. Um, so yeah, just an interesting one too, to kind of think about how much calories we're, we're taking in and uh, certainly uh, expending as well with our activity levels. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, also one of, one of his ideas is to, is to put together a food diary. Um, now, his whole thing is, is not to kind of uh, get pie in the sky about it and, and really put um, all of the things we're never going to eat, because um, obviously we, we, we know what's healthy, we know what's unhealthy. Um, but really what it is about doing is about for a week tracking every single thing you eat um, and not just what you eat, but your habits as well. Um, so things like eating in front of the TV um, has been proven to, uh, to result in an increased number of calories in a particular meal um, because you're not looking at the food, you're not engaging with it, you're you know, thinking about other things. Um, you know, basically doing that uh, for a week and then looking back on some of the choices you made um, and in a, not in a judgmental type of way, but uh, you know, looking back on some of your choices and, and, and basically looking at some substitutes um, and, and really trying to get some of that habitual change. Uh, now, the last little bit that I took out of it as well is um, obviously your, your macronutrient splits. And, and there's been a lot about that, you know, a lot of talk about that. There's a lot of guidance about that up on the internet as well. Um, but for me, I hadn't really thought about uh, the macronutrient uh, levels of, um, of alcohol and the calories in alcohol. Now, Barry, this doesn't apply to you, so everyone else, uh, you can tune in now. Barry can, can sort of tune out. Um, but for example, uh, you know, one gram of carbohydrates uh, contains four calories. One gram of protein also contains four calories. One gram of fat contains nine calories. Um, and one gram of alcohol contains seven. Um, so yeah, definitely very interesting um, to, to actually think about what it is that we're putting into our bodies. Um, we want them to be well-oiled machines. So we, we need to put a bit more uh, effort, I think, in, in terms of uh, curating what it is that we that we put in there. Um, and just as a sort of final point, um, I was also drawn attention to uh, the NHS um, guide. So obviously, if you're uh, in the UK, you'll know exactly what the NHS is. Um, but elsewhere in the world, it would be accessible. It's online, um, where they've essentially just got their uh, sort of recommended um, healthy eating um, sort of splits in there, um, which which basically it's just one chart um, that splits out different food types, uh, different kind of um, macronutrient levels um, and all of those types of things. So I thought it'd be a good a good place to look um, if you're looking for sort of sustainable uh, kind of weight loss or sustainable maintenance and are not looking at one of these fad type diets. Very interesting. Thank you, Chad. I think I'm going to go and check those resources out. I think food science and nutrition is so confusing to people right it's you hear so many mixed messages um and so it's it's certainly worth doing some research for yourself and trying to figure out for your own body like you say what is the right thing to do so yeah thanks for those i'm gonna go check those out absolutely now the next one i just kind of jotted on you because today while i was at work um in the zone you know really uh, doing some productive stuff um got a pretty pointless little notification that popped up on my screen and uh, we were speaking about the value of attention and um you know sort of how dramatic those shifts in, in attention actually affect us. Um, and yeah, basically just, just thought about this phenomenon of curating our notifications. Now, how finally with a tooth comb have you looked through your notifications and turned on or off? I'm a little bit of a nerd with the stuff. <laughs> I've looked through it incredibly finely and I've thought a lot about this, right? Yeah. And so when I saw this on the, on the screen, I was very happy because I've got a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> um, notifications are are one of the things that kind of typify the, the modern day cell phone and the modern day kind of communication platform. And push notifications have become part and parcel of every single app on our phones. Right? Yep. It is the main way that apps try and communicate with us as users where we're not in the app. 
And kind of the, the feeling that, that we, we have as consumers is that notifications are there to help us. They're supposed to be there to kind of guide us, to alert us to something that has happened or to give us information that we want, etc. And that kind of illusion of usefulness gets mixed up with the, the app designer's intention of getting you back into the app. Yeah. So there's, there's this, this misalignment of, of what they're trying to do. And uh, there's, there's a great guy called Tristan Harris who, who speaks and writes a lot about this. Um, and what he kind of says is that you have to remember that these apps, they are actual engineers, humans who are behind the scenes, whose only job <laughs> is to get you to go back into the app as many times as possible. Yep. So they will use any of this technology, any of these notifications, any psychology they can use to try and get you, as you say, Chad, to distract you from what you're actually doing and bring you back to the app. Yep. And so, and I think by going through this process of looking at my notifications and turning almost all of them off, I realized that 95% of my notifications I didn't need to be notified about, <laughs> right? I could have come to them at a time that was convenient for me. I could have come to them at a time when I opened the app to look for something, or I just didn't need to see them at all. And so personally, I think they are terrible. I think they are, they're kind of, they give you that dopamine hit in the middle of something important, and that's the reason people are addicted to their phones yeah. because they're buzzing a thousand times a day, and we can't help but wonder what that notification is about. It could be a message from my partner. It could be a message from my mom. It could be my favorite football results. It could be a, a thousand different things. Yeah. And that kind of slot machine kind of psychology means that we're picking up our phone 300, 400, 500 times a day. Yeah. So kind of the way I think about this is that I've turned notifications off for almost everything. Like the only thing that kind of stays is my WhatsApp and my phone calls pretty much. Everything else is turned off. Um, and what that does is hopefully it gives me a little bit more peace with my phone that I'm not picking it up a thousand times a day. The sad truth is that I still am picking it up way too much. Right? The fact is I still, I still think about the notifications because I've been, I've been habituated about them. And uh, so it, it, hasn't, it hasn't solved things, but it certainly made things a little bit better. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. I'm really glad you've kind of taken the time to, to curate those. I haven't and I need to do it because uh, there's also so many insignificant ones. Um, you know, just two, two quick thoughts. Um, we've spoken about Emma Sadler, the sort of South African social media uh, lawyer that's, that's really making a name for herself. And I was listening to an episode of hers uh, on a radio station where she really spoke about the idea of downloading an app that turns your phone into a black and white device. Um, and, you know, where you speak about these engineers whose primary job is to, to get you to spend time on the platform, um, it's really interesting at how much of an effect it can have um, to completely turn your phone into a monochromatic device and it really just loses its appeal. Um, we've also got these high, super high quality screens um, with vivid colors um, and, and, you know, we, we, we haven't really realized over time that uh, we've given this amount of power to designers. Um, and push notifications really taking up quite an invasive, I'd say, um, a portion of our life. And it, it, it's really a powerful tool that we're just giving up. I'm glad you reminded me because I, I do that. I, I, I use that trick, but oh, right. I'm not sure if it's her trick or someone else, but I, I use it and it's immensely powerful. And the cool thing is that if you have an iPhone, you don't even need a separate app, right? All you have to do is you go into your settings, you go to the accessibility part in your settings, and you can set that if you triple tap on your home button, it turns into black and white or back into color. So just Google that, that process or those lists of steps and try it for yourself. It is amazing how much less dopamine your brain gets when all 
of a sudden you have a grayscale phone. Yeah. And so obviously when you go into Instagram, it makes Instagram a bit dull. So that's when you turn <laughs> the color back on because otherwise it's miserable. Yeah. Um, but when you're trying to get some work done and you make that phone black and white, it's almost a signal to your brain that, cool, I'm now putting the phone aside. I can't see all the fancy colors of the slot machine. I'm now going to focus on what's in front of me and get my tasks done as best as I can. So that color trick, like the notifications, there's a lot of these kind of tips and tricks in this world that we should be thinking more carefully about so that we actually use the phone as a tool instead of it using us, right? So we need to be careful and intentional about how we use our phones rather than just letting these app developers decide at any time of the day or night that they can then interrupt me and change what I'm thinking about. Absolutely. And the more we can be intentional about the way we use this tool, the more we can use it for all of the benefits and all of the fantastic power and technology it gives us and get rid of some of the, the nasty side effects of this kind of addictive nature. Absolutely. Now, uh, yeah, just completely agree. Um, I haven't tried it myself, but I'll have to give it a go. On the second point, um, I mean, obviously you haven't had the notifications, so it's, it's really hard to ask you the question, but I've really found some of these um, developers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of shame Facebook on this one, have become quite uh, overt and quite desperate um, which is really interesting. They're starting to send me notifications when my friend starts to do to do something. Um, I think this is uh, blatant and and uh, really just just a desperate move. But it, it, if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world because their stock price is determined by the number of monthly active users on their platform. And for, as Facebook influence starts to wane because the, the, the platform gets older and older and people start leaving Facebook for other platforms, they have to get more and more desperate because they need to keep the clicks and engagement and whatnot up because that's how they sell ads and that's how they push the stock price. Yeah. So the point I think of this is that this kind of advertising-based model has so many nasty side effects to it that we're only starting to come across now, even though the model has been in place for years. Absolutely. And until we get to a point where Facebook's value is not determined by the amount of time I spend on their app, but rather determined by the amount of value that I get out of their app, then nothing's going to change because all they care about is getting my eyeballs back onto that app. So like you said, the notifications are going to get more and more <laughs> obtuse and more and more strange and more and more undesired because they are so desperate to get your eyes back on their platform that they can sell ads. So we need an entire business model shift. It changed the way that we think about advertising, we think about social networking and kind of internet business as a whole. And I think we're going to be forced to reconcile with that when we have kind of the, some of the psychological impacts after years and years and years of this kind of distraction. So, for example, us in our old age or maybe our children and great-grandchildren, what's going to happen with their ability to concentrate and ability to focus and ability to Definitely. put aside these technological devices? Yep. Um, and that's where, that's where the conversation needs to go. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, uh, I know we've, we've, we've got a long episode again, but so many interesting things to, to chat about. When you start mentioning kids and, and you know, those considerations, I was actually talking to um, somebody who, uh, who looks after kids for a living. She was basically saying that in today's age, if a three-year-old doesn't have an iPad, um, it is absolute outrage. Um, with, you know, the social groups. Um, and now you've got, uh, you know, YouTube having a, a actual kids section. Um, you know, whenever we upload one of our podcasts, we have to specifically tick whether it is or isn't made for kids um, because, you know, that's a separate channel. Um, so really interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, as these generations grow up, it's going to be interesting to see, as you say, how, how these people um, concentrate and, uh, and, you know, how much of an actual effect um, this is going to have. 
this is definitely the case. I've actually got a friend who's is pregnant at the moment, and so they're starting to think about their first baby. And all of our conversations are centering around this topic, around this topic of how are you going to parent with this technology in your life, right? This is the canonical parental question of our generation. And uh, it's as you say, it's not just how you parent your own child, but also in the context of the school children they're with, the parents around you, the kind of the, the circumstances that that child finds itself in at school or at clubs or at sports, etc., there's a lot to be thought about here. We think about phones and technology and the impact it's going to have. And unfortunately, we're not going to see the psychological impacts for decades. And it's hard to understand, it's hard to make a change or hard to convince, say, policymakers or technologists to change the way they're doing things if we can't point to evidence that, that's, that, that says a certain thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, definitely an interesting environment to bring up kids uh, in today's day and age. Uh, now, this last one, um, as I said, I know we've thrown quite a lot, um, but I, on my way from work to home to record this uh, podcast episode, actually, um, obviously, we, we mentioned it's raining out here in London as well, um, saw pretty much a 50-year-old, I'd say, dressed up in a suit um, coming down the street at uh, a heck of a speed um, on a skateboard uh, with a smile on his face in the rain. Um, I watched as well a video uh, released by, uh, you know, big YouTuber Casey Neistat this last week as well, um, where he essentially just uh, takes a look at how we look at our life at different points of our life. Um, and essentially the phenomenon here is when we're young, we sort of look ahead and we, we're kind of placing a big, uh, big bit of emphasis on, on, you know, our future, what we're going to be doing when we're older, uh, you know, what our retirement is going to look like, all of that type of stuff. Um, and when we get to retirement, we're looking back at all of the memories and we're looking back at all of the, you know, all of the things that we've did and, and all of those types of things. Um, and it, it just basically probed this really interesting um, thought of don't grow up. Um, and so when I saw the the fifty year old on his he he may not have been but uh, I I would I would place him there on his skateboard um, in you know basically a, a predominantly banking area in a suit um, it it really just uh, sparked a bit of joy um, and uh, yeah if if there's one thing we could kind of pull into the year to to not take ourselves so seriously and and really just uh, just be ourselves. Uh, why do we need to grow up? Who's telling us to to grow up? Um, let's just enjoy life. What do you think, Barry? I completely agree. I think that's it's one of the keys to joy and the keys to living a long, prosperous life, right, is remembering that that like childlike sense of wonder at the simplest things, right? So yeah. A child can look at something that we take for granted, we think is so simple, um, a flower or a piece of grass or an insect or anything, really, and, and see such wonder and such kind of magic in the world. And over time, as we grow up, we lose that magic because we get beaten down by circumstance and life throws curveballs and things don't go our way, etc. And if we can just remember in, the, in those moments, like you say, that we can choose to be childlike at heart whenever we want, yeah. that is, I think, is the key to really enjoying yourself and really being enthusiastic about life. And we, we all care way too much about what other people think about us and way, not, and way too little about our own personal how we feel. And so if, you, if it makes you happy to skateboard down the park in your, on, in your suit at 50 years old, do it because that is, that is what makes you you. And that Absolutely. kind of childlike wonder is something to be celebrated and to, to, be, to be focused on. Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, I don't know why we, uh, why we give everyone else's opinion such, uh, such just value and, and, uh, and really just limit things that we actually want, our inner yearns, um, because, of, because of those uh, yeah, social 
boundaries that we, we, we that kind of get set for us. Um, I think that's taken us to the end of another long episode. Um, yeah, we, we kind of went on a bit of a roller coaster today with some some really, really uh, intense stuff that's going on in the world um, to some pretty light things at the end. So hopefully you've enjoyed uh, the ride for this roller coaster. I quickly just opened up the Anchor app, Barry. Um, and uh, I think, you know, you talking about uh, Putin laughing at, at Trump and and what's happening there uh, prompted a couple of listeners from Russia. So uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning Amazing. in. Uh, if you're if you're in Russia, um, hopefully you're enjoying the podcast as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And if you got to this, if you got to this far on the show, we really do appreciate you listening. Like, it's really cool to hear from you guys around the world, and to see new countries popping up every now and then is, is wonderful. So good to have you on board. Like Chad said. Jump on the roller coaster with us and let's see where it takes us. <laughs> Absolutely. Always looking forward to uh, coming back to uh, this podcast every week. Hopefully you enjoy it as much as we do. Um, yeah, basically, uh, this is the end of the podcast. So thanks for tuning in. Um, we always, again, want people to send us some voice notes through our Anchor app or Anchor uh, website. Um, so certainly do send us questions or if you want to just uh, sort of follow us on any of our social media platforms, please do. Um, and yeah, let's let's have a bit of a bit of conversation. That's kind of kind of the point of this. So thanks for tuning in. And again, this was episode nine of Across the Pond. Oh.